You'll remember our context that we have been in for several weeks now, Joshua 7. We will conclude our exposition of this chapter tonight. Just to remind you, Israel, under Joshua's leadership, has been sustained in the wilderness after a mighty supernatural deliverance out of Egyptian bondage. The Lord upholds and protects them for 40 years. And now they've once again been supernaturally brought by miraculous deliverance into the promised land now. They've seen God's strength in crushing their first city they run into, the Canaanite city of Jericho. But now they've come to a serious setback and a moral crossroads. We've spent so much time on this chapter because this chapter is pivotal. It's pivotal for a believer to understand in the life of a single individual, but it's certainly pivotal for us to understand the life, sin in the life of a household, as we'll see, and sin in the life of a church. Because in this chapter, we get uh, to see God's hatred for sin, his, his unstoppable hatred for sin, how to address sin, proper attitudes towards sin. So let me encourage you now to open your copy of God's Word to John 7 and pray with me as we seek the help of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we ask that you would pour out the Holy Spirit upon us in power. Pry open our hard hearts. Pour in the Word. Lord, we ask you would take this Word that's living and active, and you would prick our consciences, that you would bring about repentance and faith and transformation and spiritual growth, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would ask you if you remember what happens when Achan is discovered. When the sin in the camp is narrowed down to one person. When God, by a few casts of the lot, discovers the one who's brought trouble upon the whole nation. Remember, Achan's name means trouble. So when the troubler of Israel is found out, what then? And I want you to have, again, as we've been examining so carefully and so closely, I want you to have a, a very clear sense of the scene that day. Out on the plain of Jericho, some two to five million Israelites, the entire nation of Israel, are gathered outdoors, intently watching the process. And as they watched, first, as the lot was cast, the, the tribe of Judah was chosen, so 11 tribes breathed a sigh of relief, but they stayed to watch. And then inside the tribe of Judah, then the family, then the household, then the man, Achan. Every eye is riveted on him, especially the 36 widows whose husbands were killed because of Achan's sin. 36 families left fatherless. Joshua demands confession of sin, and Achan makes an honest confession. Look at the facts of the narrative with me at the close of chapter 7, beginning in verse 22. Several things you should notice as we as we conclude the, the fact. First of all, there's the securing of the evidence. Look at verse 22. We read, So Joshua sent messengers, they ran to the tent, and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver under it. Now I want you to notice something about Joshua's lieutenants. They run. This is immediate obedience. No reticence. These aren't men who say, Guys, we don't think God is glorified through wrath and judgment. And so we're going to foot drag and slow walk. Let's say, uh, Joshua, we couldn't find his tent. Don't know which street it's on. So we're going to try to dodge this one. God is only glorified through mercy as far as we see it. That's not what these men do. Look carefully at verse 22. These men understand that God's wrath and his mercy are to be glorified equally. 
And in fact, that is the eternal state of things. God's wrath and his mercy will be glorified forever. So just as they hurry to proclaim God's mercy, these men now hurry in an errand of judgment. Look at the second aspect of the narrative in verse 23. We have the display. This is the stolen contraband from the midst of the tent. And we read, they brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. And so now the entire nation can see Achan's sin. They can see what he's taken. The record of the crime, the evidence is laid before them. Everyone in the whole nation understands this isn't a frame. It's not a false accusation. It's not a setup. The evidence has been brought forward and it's incontrovertible. Then look in verse 24 as we continue in the narrative. Watch the guilty man be taken to the place of judgment. But watch who else is taken with him. If there's anything about the book of Joshua, if there's anything about chapter 7 that troubles some, it is verse 24. Look at it very carefully with me. So then after being found, after the evidence being presented, we read Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. Now, look very carefully at this text. I will not skip over it, because we must never apologize for the word of God. Look carefully at verse 24, and you will notice this is covenantal judgment. Everything that belongs to Achan, his entire house, all his possessions are all taken to the valley of Achor. And then look at the next aspect of the narrative in verse 25. This is the clear and blinking word of God, that the guilty person be executed. And we read, Joshua said, why have you troubled us? And there's a Hebrew wordplay going on here because Achan, which is the man's name, and Achor, the valley where they're standing, are variations on the Hebrew word for trouble. So Joshua is saying to a man whose name is trouble, as he stands in the valley named trouble, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And so we read, all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire after they'd stoned them with stones. Now I want you to look carefully at the unity of the nation in verse 25. It's the whole nation, all Israel, who are stoning him with stones. They're all taking part in punishing Achan. For anyone not to concur in this judgment would be to condone Achan's sin. Just as if in the New Covenant, after the elders had pronounced the sentence of excommunication, if a member would say, I know the scripture says to treat such a person who's excommunicated as a Gentile and a tax collector, to now view them as an unbeliever, one who's to be a subject for prayer and evangelism. But I'm not going to do that. I know the rest of the church. That's what they're commanded to do. But I'm not going to participate. I'm going to act individualistically. And I'm going to say, no, it's not my place. And I'm not going to treat them that way. For anybody on this day, there in the Valley of Achor to say, no, I don't think I'm going to view the reprobate Achan that way. No stones in my hand. Not going to participate in the judgment. That's not an option, and it didn't happen. Look carefully at the wording of verse 25. All Israel stoned them with stones. And then the last aspect of the narrative in verse 26, I want you to look at the giant heap. 
How many stones can two to five million people throw into a valley? That's a big pile. We read from the text, Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. And then the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Why is there a heap of stones raised? As a reminder to everyone who will walk by this giant mountain of rocks, some two to five million of them all thrown in by every member of the nation. This pile is a reminder that God demands obedience from his people to his word. And if they don't, judgment must fall. Now, at this point, you're thinking, something sounds very familiar here, Carl. I I seem to remember another pile of stones. That's because this is not the first pile of memorial stones we've encountered in the book of Joshua. If you remember in Joshua chapter 4, when the people of God crossed the Jordan by the mighty hand of God, and they erected two heaps of stones there, one in the riverbed, one by Gilgal. And the heap of stones that were raised in Joshua 4 reminded the people that God is gracious to his people, that that he acts supernaturally for them. But this heap of stones... This one in the Valley of Achor reminds them that God judges rebels and apostates. Now notice the antithesis that's drawn for us in Joshua by these two heaps of stones, the one in Joshua 4, the other one in Joshua 7. In Joshua 4, here's a memorial pile of stones. God delivers his people by his grace, mercy, and power, and it's shown by that pile. But now in Joshua 7, another memorial pile of stones in the Valley of Achor And this pile of stones says, God hates sin. What I want us to do in the remaining moments that we have is I want us to go back to the narrative and point out the value of it. Because so much of evangelicalism today would rather sort of do what Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible. Do you remember what Thomas Jefferson did, the first study Bible? Thomas Jefferson, who wanted to put together his own version of the Bible. And so he took several Bibles, and he took his pair of scissors, and he cut out anything that was distasteful to him, mostly about the supernatural intervention of God, because Jefferson was a deist, anything of Christ's miracles, anything of the resurrection, and he created this, and it went on the market for sale. Not only did he do it, he profited from it. Well, there are believers today who maybe you don't have a pair of scissors in your pocket right now, but mentally you, on a regular basis, you read by and say, no, 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 I would cut that out. Joshua 7 is just such a passage where people do that. It's a very uncomfortable, very difficult passage, and we would just as soon not talk about it or hear it. But what I want us to do for just a few moments is to see the value of this text for us and the application of it to us. And I want to show you some typological value of this narrative first, that this text has some types in it, some things that point to the new covenant and to Christ. The first type that we see clearly in this chapter, listen carefully because the gospel is being proclaimed here, is you have this type. When the sin bearer dies, God's fierce wrath is turned away. When the sin bearer dies, God's fierce wrath is turned away. Look at the beginning of the chapter in Joshua 7, 1, and then the end. We read in Joshua 7, 1, The children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. 
That's their status right now. The Lord is, has, they've seen the flashing out of his wrath. What will it take to propitiate his wrath? Look at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 27. After the death of Achan, we read these words. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. What happened to turn God's wrath away? Listen carefully. The death of the sin bearer. This is a picture of that doctrine in Scripture that's known as propitiation. Pastor Anderson just read about it a moment ago in Romans 3. And this is a glorious picture of us. Don't depersonalize this and say, this is an ancient saga. It's 3,400 years old. It has nothing to do with me. But the picture we just saw in Joshua 7.1 and Joshua 7.27 is a picture of your life. Remember these words. Here's how you came out of the womb, according to Ephesians 2. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He says again in Ephesians 2, that you lived your life according to the prince of the power of the air. Paul says, you got your marching orders from the evil one. And then Paul sums it up and says, you were by nature children of wrath. In other words, let me make it very simple for you. We were Achans. What is it that turned God's wrath away from us? We were children of wrath until Christ died, paying for our sin, thus appeasing the wrath of a holy God. That's the doctrine of propitiation. And it's taught all over the New Testament. For example, we read in 1 John 4, 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The doctrine that we are under God's wrath until a sin bearer dies for us is all over the New Testament. As Achan died, and then God's wrath was appeased. We see a dim picture, a shadow of the truth that the sin bearer must die before God's wrath will be turned away. And that's the picture of the gospel in your case and mine. You, instead of being at the, the bottom of a heap of stones somewhere, go free because a sin-bearing substitute has stepped in for you. There's a second type we see in this narrative. The second is this very long day that's narrated for us in Joshua 7. It's a long day with the, with the discovery of the contraband, the winnowing down process, the moving around of several million people, the calling forth of Achan, the shepherding of him over to the valley of Achor, then the, the stoning, then the burning of Achan and his household. It's a long day. It's sun up to sundown. It's foreshadowing a day. It's pointing to the day that Scripture speaks of as the last judgment. A few similarities will show the correspondence. Just as all Israel, we are told, is gathered here, you could have gone through all the tents, thousands, hundreds of thousands of tents, and you wouldn't have found a soul in the tent. All Israel is gathered. Just so all mankind will stand before the greater Joshua. You'll remember we've been saying all through our preaching of the book that Joshua here is the lesser Joshua, and he foreshadows the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Joshua has the whole nation gathered before him on this day, the Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that he will gather everyone who ever lived before him on that great day of judgment. There are other similarities. Just as Achan's household was separated out from all the others, so will the goats be separated from the sheep on that day of last judgment, we are told by Jesus in Matthew 25. <clears throat> Another point of <clears throat> correspondence. On that great day, 
the hidden things of darkness shall all be brought out into the light. Just like on the day we read of here in Joshua 7, we read those things <coughs> that Achim thought he had securely hidden in his tent, buried under the earth. He thought no one would ever know. They're brought out. Two to five million people see them. Just so at the last judgment, all sin will be exposed. All things hidden will be brought to the light and all will see. There's another point of correspondence. Another way this foreshadows the great day of the last judgment. As all Israel united in the stoning of Achan's family, so the elect will judge the world. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul scolds the, the church at Corinth and he says, why are you going to secular courts? Why are you going and getting the judicial review and judgment of lost men? They have no wisdom. And so Paul says, he reminds believers of a profound point. He says, don't you know that saints will judge the world? And so what we have here in Joshua 7 is a down payment where the entire nation of Israel takes place in judging Achan. Just so it's a down payment for that day when the saints will with Christ judge the world. Another point of correspondence. Just as the guilty in this text, not only were they stoned, but were told they were burned with fire. So will everlasting fire be the portion of the reprobate at the last judgment. You see this text pointing to the great day that yet remains. But many want to hurry to see what to be done, but I want us to hurry to see the covenantal implications of this text. And here's the point where many stumble over this text. Listen carefully. One man sinned, his whole household was judged. Why is this? Is God unfair? No, God sees, as you've heard me say from this pulpit many times, and you'll hear it many more, God sees covenantally, federally, representatively. We make the grand mistake as contemporary Americans of always thinking individualistically, but God sees by household, by family, by congregations. By that, I mean that God always appoints covenant heads to act for representative bodies. Easiest example. Adam was appointed to act for the race. And let me tell you, I'm setting a trap for your feet right now. Do you like the, the fact that God chose Adam to be our covenant head? No, no, I don't want anybody acting for me. Then you're really not going to like it when God appoints the Lord Jesus Christ to act as your covenant head. It's the second Adam, the one who's filled with all righteousness. So what we must see is, God is not unfair to appoint a covenant head. There's no unrighteousness in God. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that in Adam all die. Adam acted for the race. We see that again in mercy. A great example is Acts 16.31 where, where Paul and fellow, <clears throat> fellow apostolic helpers are in the jail, under the jail in Philippi. A great earthquake happens. The Philippian jailer runs down and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul refuses to preach the gospel individualistically. I can count on one hand the evangelistic presentations I've ever seen or heard that preach the gospel like Paul does. Typically, we preach the gospel individualistically. The Philippian jailer asks the question and says, what must I, singular, do to be saved? And Paul will not answer his question. He says, you. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. 
Paul is teaching us to think covenantally, by household, representatively. You see, the covenantal principle works in judgment. We certainly see it in Achan's case. And it works in mercy. The best example of the covenantal principle of someone acting as a representative for a great group that no one can number is the Lord Jesus, who lives as our representative, as our federal head. He lives a sinless life, dies a substitutionary death, is raised for our justification, and he acts as the covenant head, the representative for his church. So you don't have to live a sinless life. You don't have to pay for your sins. Your covenant representative, the Lord Jesus, your federal head has already done that. He's done it for you in your stead. As a parenthetical expression, it's a great blessing to have a believing covenant head in your home. Just ask, ask Noah's children. Noah was a godly man who walked in faith. Those blessings flowed to his family. We're only told that Noah was a believer, but all his children were delivered in the ark. They were all saved. Because of dad's faith. We see this again in 1 Corinthians 7. Pastor Anderson mentioned it a moment ago in Ruby Hosanna's baptism. When he mentioned 1 Corinthians 7, where we're told if even if there's just one believing parent, the children of that household are said to be holy. They're marked out by baptism as belonging to the Lord. That's the representative principle at work. And so what we see here. Stare at verse 24. This is covenant theology in action. It's the dark side of covenant theology, but it's covenant theology. What we see here is when God judges Achan, he judges his household as well. It's nothing more than the consistent way that God deals with families and households. But there's also a great theological observation from this text, one that everybody in this room, I'm certain, has memorized, but one that needs to be said over and over and over again. If there is one theological principle we must come away from Joshua 7 with, it is this, and it's profound. And every one of you knows this deep down in your bones. The wages of sin is death. That's the principle we're to see. If you write headlines for chapter, chapter headings, just write that as the heading over Joshua 7. The wages of sin is death. When you read Romans 6.23 and hear these words, don't just memorize that as an abstract line, a, a doctrine that has no meaning. I want to embed in your mind from this day forward, whenever you think of the wages of sin, I would put in your mind the picture of Joshua 7 and Achan's sin. The wages of sin is crushing. The cause of every death is sin. How do we apply this word? I want to make separate applications. I first want to speak to unbelievers. I'm so thankful you're here. I'm so thankful you put yourself under the preaching of the word of God. But I want to speak to the unbeliever who's never bowed the knee in repentance and faith towards Jesus Christ. I want to show you what this text should mean to you. If you could read Achan's mind that day as he stood there in the valley of Achor, as he looked around, he's surrounded by millions of <clears throat> fellow Israelites, as he looks, he sees old friends, <clears throat> childhood playmates, all bending down, picking up stones to be hurled at him. What thoughts ran through his mind? You know that he was thinking, oh, that I'd resisted temptation. Oh, that I'd plucked out right eyes and chopped off right hands when I first looked upon that which was unlawful for me to possess. You want to ask Achan, at that point when Joshua lifts his arm to give the signal, as Achan and his house are standing now down inside the pit in the valley of Achor. 
Achan, what delight? What delight does your crime give you now? What does delight does your stolen garment and gold give you now as it's preparing to be burned up at the bottom of a trash heap? You want to ask him, Achan, as you hear the, the shrieks and the piercing wails of your children, what blessings did your sin bring to your children? My unbelieving friend, you must hear this, that you will come and stand one day before the same impartial, holy, omniscient judge. Will there some questions be asked of you on that day? If you sit here as an enemy of the cross, if you've never been driven out of your carnal confidence and your love for sin to find refuge in Jesus, I would plead with you tonight to look upon what keeps you from Christ like you'll look upon it at the last day. Perhaps tonight you're saying, I can't come to Christ. I'd have to give this up and I'd have to give that up. And Carl, I love my stuff. I love my sin. My friend, look on it right now like you'll look on it on the last day. The day when the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, will sit upon his throne and the books will be open and he'll utter those terrible words. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. How will you look on your pet sins then? How will you feel about your sins when they're paraded out into the open and judged? If you're not in Christ, let me speak so honestly to you. If you're not in Christ on that day, the treatment that Achan got from Joshua and the Israelites will seem like a stroll in the park. Don't think in Achan's case, it was bad for a few minutes, but now Achan is resting comfortably. No. Achan's punishment was mild on that day compared to his future punishment. As to time, he will suffer forever. On that day, maybe he was in agony for 10 or 15 minutes before he was knocked out by a stone and then the flames. As to pain and misery and suffering, his discomfort will grow exponentially forever. Just as the saints will grow in blessedness throughout all eternity, every day will bring new heights of joy and delight. So the reprobate man will plummet downward every day into newfound depths of agony and suffering forever. You see, heaven and hell are both progressive. My unbelieving friend, I plead with you. Tonight, take the free offer of mercy that Christ extends to you. See your sin as you'll see it on the last day. Repudiate it and run towards Christ, pleading for mercy. And there you'll find mercy. Because Christ has opened his arms and said, The one who comes to me, I will never cast out. But there are applications for believers tonight too. Child of God, do you find it sometimes difficult to appreciate your Savior? Do you feel dry at times and say, I, I know I just don't love the gospel like I should. I don't love Christ with the zeal that I should. I don't love my salvation as I know I should. My friend, remember, there's no sin that you've committed that doesn't deserve the same treatment that Achan got. Why hasn't God summoned you to the valley of Achor? Why hasn't God issued a mandate for your destruction? It's because he issued a mandate for the destruction of your substitute. That's why Romans 8.1 says, because of that, there is now, now today, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus was your Achan. Jesus was your substitute. He took every drop of your due punishment. The reason God's anger is never and never will be stirred against you is because his judicial wrath <clears throat> has already been stirred against Christ in your place. You've been given a reprieve. 
How can you be depressed or melancholy when you know that you'll never be judged for one sin? This text is solemn and sobering. It should drive every one of us today either to run to Christ to find mercy or to go to Christ in praise for his substitutionary work on our behalf. Let us run to him now. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh Christ, how we praise you that you have suffered pain and judgment and wrath for us. Surely we were children of wrath, born dead in trespasses and sins. Oh Lord, how glorious is the gospel that you would send the sinless one to bear those deserving of far worse than they can receive, that you'd send the sinless one to be our substitute. Help us to never grow weary of the glories of propitiation and substitutionary atonement. Help us never grow tired or think it commonplace that Christ has died for sinners. <clears throat> we see our sin tonight. We see it as that which is horrid and separated us from you at one time, that which you hate because of your holiness. But how we delight in you that you sent Jesus to be our substitute, our Achan, the one who would not shrink back, knowing that our fate would be far worse than Achan. How we praise you that you sent Jesus to come willingly, despising the shame to bear our wrath. Oh, Lord, how our heart goes out in love and adoration, affection and trust towards Jesus. Help us to proclaim, to be busy about proclaiming this gospel, that Christ has died for sinners. And how he now makes a way for those who've been children of wrath to have freedom. How we praise you that you have told us there is no condemnation for us today, now. Lord, we pray that you would draw some even from this room tonight. That those who have held so tightly onto their sins and clutched them to their chest would now see their sin as that which separates them from you. And they would come to Christ tonight even in repentance and faith. We pray in the name of our only hope and substitute, even Jesus our Lord. Amen.